New York, and welcome to our listeners from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. We're usually a weekly show that showcases New York City's history and its neighborhoods. Uh, on most shows, we focus on a particular neighborhood. We explore its history, its vibe, its texture, its energy, what really makes the neighborhood special. And we typically do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. But today, we are going to be doing a different show, which we will do be doing occasionally. Uh, today is Lincoln's birthday. Not that long ago, we celebrated both Lincoln's and Washington's birthday. Washington's birthday is the 22nd. Uh, now we've combined the birthday anniversaries of both George Washington and Lincoln into one national holiday, President's Day, which we're celebrating next Monday. Uh, but today, on the anniversary of the birthday of one of America's greatest presidents, perhaps even the greatest, I thought it very fitting that we host a special show about New York and the presidents of the United States, with an emphasis on places they lived, they visited, they touched in some ways, or that they influenced when they were here. Some of the places they lived and visited are no longer here for us to see. Some of them have plaques, but many of the building and structures that touch their lives are still here. We will look at both. With the obvious exception of the nation's capital, New York probably has had more activity before, during, and after presidencies than any other place in these great United States. And for this show, it's my pleasure to welcome back New York special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Hi. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm great. How are you, David? Thank, thanks so much for being here. Uh, just a, a brief bio of David's work. We're going to uh, let him talk about his, his company a little later on in the show. Uh, David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. Uh, he's created a series called Room at the Top, which I've been lucky enough to get invited to. Uh, it's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace, uh, Mason Art, New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. It's my pleasure to welcome David Griffin back to Rediscovering New York. And a uh, pleasure to be here, Jeff. Uh, I think the most appropriate thing to start with uh, is George Washington. He, yeah. was our, he was our first president, uh, and he played an important role in the public life of New York, believe it or not. Uh, in fact, his history here spanned five decades of the 18th century. Can you imagine mm, that? Five yeah. decades? Uh, and New York uh, experienced some of his greatest personal triumphs uh, and some of his greatest defeats. His first visit to New York was in February 1756. He was en route to Boston to confer with Britain's military commander in the colonies regarding his commission in the British Army and the coming war with France which we now know as the French and Indian War, and which Europeans know as the Seven Years' War. Um, but a very interesting thing about Washington, he was actually back in New York between uh, the French and Indian War and our War for Independence. In 1773, he came to New York to enroll his stepson, Jackie Custis, in King's College, which later became Columbia. Mm. Although Washington didn't have any children, uh, at least none that we know of, <laughs> certainly none with, with his wife Martha, he did perform that age-old parental tradition of accompanying the children off to their freshman year in college. Uh. <laughs> I wonder if he started it. Um, but two years later, in 1775, he again passed through New York, this time for more serious business. He was on his way to Boston after accepting the Continental Congress's appointment to lead the new Continental Army. This was right after the battles of Lexington and Concord which began our War of Independence. Um, that, by the way, started in 1775, even though we didn't declare our independence from Britain until 15 months after that, in July 9, 1776. Well, after Washington forcibly uh, made the British retreat from Boston, and this is still before the Declaration of Independence, he brought his army south from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was not a state yet, to New York City to defend New York against a likely British attack. The British plan was to use New York as their new base in the colonies and to split them in two. Uh, 
he knew it was very, very difficult to defend it without a navy, to defend an island, but Congress insisted that he do it, and so he tried. Um, after months of preparations on both sides, the British invaded Long Island at the end of August, due in part to Washington's tactical naivete. He was outflanked, and his army was cornered in what's now Brooklyn Heights across the East River from Manhattan. But Washington engineered a daring escape for his army under the cover of night and a timely fog. Uh, the British pursued the army up the island of Manhattan before Washington and his army crossed into New Jersey. You think of New Jersey as a haven from uh, being pursued from New York, but it was in those days. <laughs> um, there are some historic uh, uh, sites of notice that you can visit dating from those times. Um, one of the best is the Morris Jamel Mansion. It's actually the oldest house on the island of Manhattan. Uh, Washington really did sleep there. <laughs> it was his headquarters during what was a treating fight up the island of Manhattan. Um, the original house was finished in 1765. Its original owner was a British captain, Roger Morris, who built the house for himself and his American wife. And being loyalist to the crown, they left New York in 1775 after the war started. Uh, Washington's history during the Revolution also goes to Brooklyn. Um, part of the Battle of Long Island, it was known then, later known as the Battle of Brooklyn, was fought in present-day Prospect Park. And there are several monuments that you can still see in the park. There's the Battle Pass Historic Marker. Uh, it was a place in the road that was a site of a fight between the Continental Army and the British. And actually a very moving monument, but you have to walk up to the upper parts of Prospect Park to see it, is the Maryland Memorial. Yes, that's a gorgeous one, actually. And to think that there were just a couple of hundred uh, soldiers of Maryland who, during this intense battle against thousands of British, uh, with just several hundred of them, they engaged the British that, uh, to the point that Washington was able to get his forces out uh, to Manhattan uh, in the cover of fog and darkness and live to fight another day. Uh, after the war, uh, Washington longed to recapture New York and avenge his defeat, but that wasn't to happen in battle. Uh, but he did come back triumphantly in 1783. Uh, he came back on, uh, as the British were evacuating after the Treaty of Paris, which the British recognized our independence. Uh, on that day, he marched around 800 troops into the city before throngs of celebrating citizens. Uh, on December 4th, he bade farewell to his remaining officers in the long room of France's tavern. Uh, less than a month after that, he left the city to go to Annapolis, where he returned his commission to Congress before heading home to Mount Vernon, where he was going to live out his days in retirement. Uh, you can still visit France's Tavern, uh, where he said farewell to the troops. It's not the original building. It was damaged by fire, and it was altered a number of times, about 1900. But some of the building is original, and it certainly has the look and feel of an 18th century building. Yes, there are two other um, structures that were associated with Washington's time in New York. Um, obviously, the most um, significant is Federal Hall, which uh, now exists as the Federal Hall Memorial uh, down on the corner of Wall. And uh, that is one of the most significant Greek revival buildings in the United States. It stands on the location of the original Federal Hall, which was built in 1699 through 1703 as New York City Hall. And that building uh, basically served the purpose of the U.S. Capitol building during the time of its existence and the time of Washington's tenure. Uh, it was the place where, for example, um, uh, 12 amendments of the Constitution were initially drafted, 10 of which were later adopted. Uh, the United States Bill of Rights was first proposed in Federal Hall. The Stamp Act Congress was uh, done so as well, same site, 24 years earlier. And the Judiciary Act of 1789 was enacted in the building which set up the United States federal court system that's still in use today. The building was taken down and replaced uh, by the uh, current building, which, as I said, is a magnificent Greek revival structure. Um, it was constructed of Tuckahoe marble and took more than a decade to complete. Uh, people were concerned with the loss of this historic fabric. Even back then, this was in the 1840s. The building opened in 1842. We had no landmark law back then. We had no landmark law back then. And um, I believe in the 1880s, the statue of Washington was um, erected at what they thought was the approximate actual site of his greeting crowds from the original Federal Hall's balcony. Um, it is uh, definitely a, a very moving memorial. And if you have a chance to see the interior of it, it's really quite spectacular based on on the Pantheon in Rome. Uh, another building which unfortunately no longer exists uh, as well, 3 Cherry Street, was the Mr. and Mrs. Washington's address while they lived in New York. And that was the scene of a very um, 
interesting tea party when Mrs. Washington first opened up the house to the people of New York. Uh, they came in and began sort of examining the china and the furnishings. And Did finally, they break anything? Uh, not, not that I know of, but it seemed that uh, from accounts given during the day that they were looking to see if the Washingtons were bringing in thought things that they thought were too expensive. In other words, that smacked of sort of royalty or something of that nature. And so, of course, uh, that might be the last time anyone in New York thought someone's furniture might be too fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yes, that was it was something that evidently was noted at the time by people that everyone was checking that out. Well, the place on Cherry Street was a little small uh, for the Washington. So they actually moved further downtown uh, to 39 Broadway, the house called the Bunker's Mansion House, which later became the Bunker's Mansion Hotel. That since is destroyed, but unlike Cherry Street, there is a plaque in front of the building at 39 Broadway, and it was placed there by none other than, drumroll, Daughters of the American Revolution. <laughs> so you can actually see where Washington and Martha lived. Um, and of course, you can see the site of Federal Hall, which was built as the Customs House, was it not? Yes, yes. it was. Mm-hmm. Before it moved several times. Um, well, Washington was only here a year for an important reason uh, in the history of American politics. We have a number of compromises throughout our history, and a very big one was made in 1790. Uh, One person we're going to talk about who was a founding father, but not a president, but very much entwined in New York, was Alexander Hamilton, Mm. who was the first secretary of the Treasury. Um, He never sought higher office other than his cabinet post. He was Washington's secretary of the Treasury, uh, and he had been hard at work to try to get the federal government to assume all the debts accrued by the states during the Revolutionary War. Um, I know this is a little granular, but it does speak to something important about the founding of our, of our constitutional government. It's not well known, but most of the debt that the new United States of America had accrued in procuring equipment and supplies for war independence was, at, war of independence, was actually borrowed and guaranteed by individual states. Uh, Hamilton wanted the federal government to assume this debt. Uh, on the basis that it would only increase, they were against it because they thought it would increase the burden of debt that the federal government was shouldering. But Hamilton had a lot of vision. In his view, the benefits far outweighed the costs. Uh, aside from the stabilization of economy, of the economy, uh, Hamilton was convinced that by taking all of this debt under one umbrella, it would help strengthen the federal government, which he was not convinced was strong enough in the face of state governments who were uh, coming out of the nation's first political system that formed the artic- by the Articles of the Confederation. And the negotiations were handled uh, with two other great founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, mm. both of whom would become presidents of the United States. Uh, on August 30th, Washington left New York for the last time en route to the nation's new capital, Philadelphia, which itself was temporary until the seat of the U.S. government finally moved to the District of Columbia in 1800. Uh, We'll be back in a moment and continue our discussion with David about Hamilton and the presidents of New York. Presidents of the United States in New York. Sorry about that. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Follow Me Friday Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day.
we are back with Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. And my guest today, who's also our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, David, do you want to tell our listeners how Landmark Branding started and, and what the company does? Sure. So Landmark Branding is a, a company that provides uh, marketing and strategic support uh, for owners, developers, realtors, brokers, and tenants of historic and um, architecturally distinguished new buildings. Um, basically, I'd been working in the art world for 17 years. I was always very interested in architecture. Uh, that was really sort of my chief passion. Uh, I was writing for magazines such as uh, Metropolis and the Historic Trust Preservation with a focus on American modernism. And I began to shift uh, my focus over the last several years into my own business, uh, where I realized that people who were working with the buildings, particularly in New York City, didn't always have the historic information at their fingertips. So I create everything from VIP tours, uh, special panels, talks, lectures. Um, uh, we have a networking series that you mentioned that I co-host with Jennifer Wallace, of nascent, uh, uh, nascent Art New York, and we tour historic, uh, distinguished historic skyscrapers as far up into them as we can go. So we've done uh, One Wall Street, the Woolworth Building, the Daily News Building, the Chrysler Building, uh, you know, bringing people in and showing them how art and architecture are really part of the economic engines of New York. So I'm very pleased to work with um, some of the city's really top brokers and development firms and help tell the story that their portfolios and the buildings that they represent and work with represent for the city itself. Well, and I'm very grateful to uh, have been invited on uh, almost all of your, actually all of them, I haven't been to all of them, but <laughs> to all, all of your room at the tops, rooms at the top, which are, which are really great. Um, one of the people who negotiated this grand compromise in 1790 that uh, had the federal government assume the state debts and that moved the capital. By the way, the other part of the deal was uh, since the southern states were opposed to the federal government assuming the debt of the northern states since they had basically paid off their debt is the carrot that got dangled in front of them was moving the capital, and that's how mm. the capital mm -hmm. uh, became uh, in, uh, uh, in Maryland and Virginia. Actually, the original District of Columbia also included land in Virginia. Right. Do that was then sort of, uh, they, they went back on the bargain. <laughs> well, I heard they went back on the bargain because it was relatively undeveloped, and when there was abolitionist ruminations in the Congress about mm. potentially outlawing slavery in the District of Columbia, uh, Alexandria had one of the biggest slave markets in the United States. So mm. they, uh, uh, the Virginia delegation managed to get uh, the Virginia portion of the district ceded back to the state by the Congress. Uh, but speaking of Virginian, uh, Thomas Jefferson lived in New York when he was Secretary of State. Uh, he did not have extensive ties with the city. Uh, but there's something very significant about New York and, and, and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, did you want to talk about the Memorial Foundation? Yes. So uh, we've already touched base on the fact that, you know, uh, obviously a lot of the buildings associated with the early presidents are no longer standing in New York, unfortunately. Uh, and that as time went by, people began to become concerned that New York was losing too much of its uh, historic past. Uh, in uh, 1923, uh, a band of New Yorkers uh, came together in order to prevent the country at large from losing what uh, I think is really one of the most significant architectural works associated with an early uh, American president, uh, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. So uh, the house was at that point sliding into decay, and uh, the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation was formed in New York City, as I said, 1923, to acquire the, the mansion and the estate and turn it into a national shrine. Uh, the majority of people who signed the Certificate of Incorporation were New York City residents, and their offices were located on 115 Broadway, the former site of the city tavern where Jefferson had paid portage 133 years before. So uh, although New York itself doesn't have a great history of preserving its colonial past, and in part that was due to fires as much as demolition, uh, it was uh, really kind of interesting to see that a lot of the support for beginning to preserve presidential homes, memorials, and buildings that were in, uh, in contact with them did start in this city, and that Monticello was saved and is now currently accessible to the public because of that. That's great. So another New York idea supported by New Yorkers came to the rescue, saving yes. Monticello. Mm -hmm. You've got to love the city. <laughs> Our tentacles stretch really great, especially when it comes to preserving this country's great heritage. Um, I want to jump now to some uh, president that people usually don't associate with New York City, James Monroe. 
Uh, Monroe was actually in New York when he was in the Continental Army, and he served and fought in New York in the battles of 1776. Uh, Monroe married a New Yorker, Elizabeth Courtright, in 1786. Uh, And then, of course, he uh, became president between Madison and John Quincy Adams. When Monroe's wife died in 1830, Monroe moved back to New York City. So he lived here in the last year of his life. And here he died. Uh, He actually died on July 4th of 1831. He was the third president to die on Independence Day. Uh, The two famous ones who died on the same day actually being John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Monroe was buried in his wife's family vault in the new New York City Marble Cemetery, which is on East 2nd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues. It's open to the public, I believe, one day a month. Uh, And although a cemetery, it's a wonderful New York place. Uh, I actually lived down the block on 2nd Street in the East Village, and I'd walk by it every day. Mm, It was a great great neighborhood. Yes, yes. Um, And actually, no one is buried in the earth there. When the the New York City Marble Cemetery opened, along with its sister cemetery around the corner, um, city planners felt that uh, air and vapors from corpses led to certain diseases, so they mandated if you were going to bury people that close to the population, you had to do it in vaults. To mm. do it in underground stone. Um, but alas, Monroe is not there anymore. Uh, Virginians raised a bunch of money, and in 1859, a year before the Civil War started, with great fanfare, his remains were removed, and he was moved to Hollywood Cemetery, where not only former President John Tyler is buried outside Richmond, but also Jefferson Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, well, time to move on to Abraham Lincoln, the man whose birthday we celebrate today. Lincoln was born 210 years ago today on a, an outpost in a f- cabin in Kentucky. Uh, Lincoln's road to the presidency very much took him through New York City. Early in 1860, New York leaders of the relatively new Republican Party, and uh, God, how has it changed from its roots as the party of Abraham Lincoln? They invited him to give a speech here, which he gave on February 27th in 1860 on a very snowy night. It took place in the Grand Hall of the recently opened Cooper Union for the advancement of science and art, which we know lovingly today as Cooper Union. It was given to a group of powerful Republicans. There was a sellout crowd of 1,500 people. Lincoln argued that the Founding Fathers had little use for what was then being advanced as the notion of popular sovereignty and states' rights, and asserted that our nation's founders repeatedly sought to restrict slavery, which actually the government did by law as early as 1787. A lot of people don't know that. But with the Northwest Ordinance that set up what was then the Northwest Territory of the United States, slavery was outlawed in those territories. That was also, I think, the year that Massachusetts made slavery illegal. 1786, 1787. Were they the first state? that They uh, were the first state. Oh, wow. Wow. And then I think Connecticut was the second. Where our country was born and the first state to actually outlaw slavery. I mean, not the country was born, but where uh, the first shots were fired. Yes. Leave it to those radical Bostonians <laughs> to, to, to rabble rouse, but God, did they do a good job in that sense. Um, by all accounts of the time, Lincoln's appearance, he was an elegant, probably a little bit disheveled from what we know of him, uh, and many in the audience thought him awkward and ugly, but he brought the house down with his speech. He demonstrated intellectual leadership on the one main political issue of the day, and that actually brought him into contention for the nomination, which he won. Uh, A journalist at the time said, quote, no man ever before made such an impression on his first appeal to a New York audience. You can see the original building of the Cooper Union. Uh, It was finished in 1859, wasn't it? Yes, and it's one of the largest uses of brownstone uh, up to that that time in American architecture. But the uh, structure is also steel, is it not? Cast iron. Cast Mm -hmm. iron. Wow, wow. It's quite a building. Um, On a personal note, I had uh, uh, an experience some years ago. It was in May of 2005. Uh, The actor Sam Waterston gave Lincoln's exact speech, word for word, to an audience in the Great Hall. Wow. I have to say it was incredibly moving. I and can I, imagine. And I didn't know it, but it was videotaped. Oh, really? Yes, okay, huh? so you can see it. You can Google Waterston, Lincoln, Cooper Union, uh, or you can drop me a line at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc, and I'll be happy to send, to send you the link. Well, after leading our nation through the worst time of its history, Lincoln was taken down by an assassin's bullet. Uh, his funeral train stopped in New York on the way to Springfield, Illinois, where he was buried. And his casket was on public display in City Hall uh, for 24 hours, from April 24th to April 25th. 
And of course, New York City Hall is the oldest city hall in the United States that still houses its original government functions. Yes, actually one of the uh, most important federal-style buildings in the entire country, uh, designed in part by John McComb. Um, it was finished in 1799, and originally the back of the building was a much uh, cheaper type of stone because people thought the city would not extend past New York City Hall, that that would be the northern boundary of the city. Uh, they replicated the original design in the more expensive stone about 100 years later during the first restoration of the building. And when did City Hall actually open? Uh, 1799, I believe, 1799, wow, wow. 1800. Yeah, so they were up and running uh, just the year before the, the turn of the 19th century. And actually, uh, it's open to the public, even though security is high. Anyone can go and see. You just have to go through medical uh, metal detectors, uh, not bring any weapons with you, <laughs> and you can uh, get in to see it. Um, and speaking of New York history and Lincoln, uh, John Wilkes Booth's brother was the actor Edmund Booth. He was instrumental in founding New York's Players Club, which is still there that you can see on Gramercy Park South. And uh, the assassin of Lincoln actually has, the, the brother of the assassin of Lincoln actually has a statue to him right in Gramercy Park. Right. Um, what are some of the buildings in New York that uh, bear Lincoln's names now? Are there, and are there monuments or statues to Lincoln? Well, um, there are several notable ones throughout the city. Uh, actually, uh, potentially the first commercial structure to honor Lincoln uh, was uh, uh, still stands on 14th Street and Union Square West, and it's a very handsome uh, early Romanesque revival building. Uh, as I said, it was a commercial structure, but they named it after Abraham Lincoln. And then I'd say about, oh, maybe 50 years later in the 1920s, uh, the Lincoln Building actually was erected on uh, East 42nd Street, just opposite Grand Central Terminal, and that was a skyscraper designed in part by J.E.R. Carpenter, who was better known as as a luxury apartment house designer. And for many years, uh, it had a small uh, maquette of the uh, statue done by Henry Bacon for the Lincoln Memorial in um, the lobby. And it is still there. There is a version of that statue that is now in its own sort of space. And you can go and see uh, the original sort of plan for the, the great seated Lincoln in Washington, D.C. So that's really one of the most remarkable ones, and it, it also has a, a spectacular lobby, so anyone who happens to be on that stretch of 42nd, it's a, a nice chance to stop in and take a little historical tour. What's the address on 42nd Street? Uh, I should know that. It's between between Park and, and Madison or Park between, and Lex? It's between Park and Madison. Okay, so okay. On it. the okay. south side of the block. Okay, so, I'm yeah. confusing it with the, with, the, with the building that... Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yes, Bowery the, Savings Bank. Yes, Bowery, yeah. with, the, with that incredibly vo incredible vaulted yeah. ceiling with yes. that starry-eyed, yes. Um, all right. Well, um, we will be back in a moment to continue our discussion with David Griffin and uh, continue exploring the presidential history in New York City. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day.
We are back to Rediscovering New York. And support for Rediscovering New York comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. One thing, our show is not, uh, Rediscovering New York is not a business show about real estate, but there is one, Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, on Tuesday mornings live at 9 a.m., which can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like Rediscovering New York on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram. Uh, Handle is Jeff Goodman NYC. How novel is that? And if you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, David, there's just so much history to talk about with presidents in New York. Um, I know. We have to uh, uh, curtail a little bit all the detail that I was hoping to go through, but we do <laughs> want to talk about uh, Ulysses Grant, of course, was the leading Union general in the Civil War, responsible for many of the Union victories, especially in the second half of the war. Uh, by the way, it's not that well known, but Grant, but Grant, like Lincoln, actually spoke in the Great Hall of Cooper Union hmm. right after the Civil War, and he did so in support of President Andrew Johnson, who was very much in political conflict with much of the National Republican Party over Reconstruction. Anyway, uh, Grant, after he became, he left the White House in 1877. He retired to New York. Uh, he resided at 3 East 66th Street, the building which is no longer there. Uh, when he died in 1885, the family wanted a New York burial, even though it took a dozen years to raise the money and construct the memorial. He was first buried at Riverside Park, and after the money was raised, an extraordinary monument was constructed. Grant's body was laid to rest at the General Grant National Memorial, also known as Grant's Tomb. I also found it interesting that it's not the President Grant's National Memorial. Mm-hmm. It's General Grant's National Memorial. That's how, they wanted, that's how he wanted to be remembered. And of course, he's not buried there. No. He's entombed there. <laughs> uh, so the famous joke, who is buried in Grant's tomb, is itself a little bit of a, a twist, uh, as it were. If you've never been there and inside, it's quite a sight to behold. It's on 122nd Street and Riverside Drive and Morningside Heights. Uh, I would say it's on my top 10 things of thing, uh, places to see when you discover things or rediscover things in New York. Um, it's not a secret because everyone knows about it, uh, but most people who visit New York, and indeed most New Yorkers, have never been to Grant's Tune, especially inside. It is amazing how many people just sort of take it for granted. They're like, oh yes, Grant's Tomb, it's there, and then no one, no one thinks about the fact that it actually has quite a stunning Beaux Arts interior. It's one of the largest, I believe it actually is the largest mausoleum in New York State, and one of the largest such uh, buildings in the country. And it's, it's glorious. And the, not to uh, glorify where, where people are laid to rest, but those two red granite sarcophagi are really... They're, yeah, they're very striking. They blow you away when you go down into it. Um, well, believe it or not, we have another New York president to talk about, Chester Arthur. Uh, Got to talk about him, something that most people don't know about. Uh, there was a civil rights case in New York in 1854. Arthur was born in Vermont, by the way. He lived upstate, and uh, when, after he went to law school, he moved to the city in 1854. Uh, right that year, he represented an African-American woman named Elizabeth Jennings Graham. She was denied a seat on a streetcar because, before she was, because she was black. This was 100 years before uh, the bus strike in Montgomery, before Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Arthur won the case. Mm. And the verdict led to the desegregation of the New York City streetcar lines. That's right. In 1854, nearly a century before Brown versus Board of Education, New York law outlawed segregation in public And uh, a good 10 years before the close of the Civil War. Yes, yes. So this really was quite, quite significant. Uh, we have actually had two presidents to take the oath of office in New York. Washington, of course. The other was Chester Arthur. Uh, he lived at 123 Lexington Avenue. The building is still there, even though the facade has changed. Uh, and he became president after James Garfield died of his wounds. Uh, two, he was shot in July of 1881, and he died two and a half months later. Um, and Arthur was the second president to take the oath of office in New York City and did so at his residence. It was administered by a New York State Supreme Court justice. Uh, but talk about the Customs House. Before becoming vice president, uh, Chester Arthur had a big patronage job. 
in those days, the collector of ports was a, was a big patronage shop. And before the imposition of income taxes uh, by, might have been the 17th Amendment in 1909 or 1911, I forgot the exact date, the biggest source of government revenue was through tariffs. Mm-hmm. And Arthur was the collector of the New York Customs House. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, one of New York's own. He was born in New York City, uh, right at 28 East 20th Street. The house was torn down, but has been meticulously reconstructed. Another uh, historic site that very few New Yorkers have ever set foot in. (laughs) Yes. I haven't been there lately, but I actually went there as a teenager. (laughs) My mother took me, I think I was 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's on my bucket list, but I just have never gone back. But um, it's quite a time capsule into the house. There's a lot of period furniture, some of his possessions, things that really... Yes, things that actually were in the original building. Yes. It's it's sort of easy to miss. It's a very very nice house, but it's on a block that's kind of chock-a-block with these other sort of looming Edwardian buildings. And you just kind of walk past and think, oh, there's that. I'll go to that one day. Well, we really do recommend it because it is a, it's a quite, a, quite a spot. Uh, when Roosevelt was six years old, he and his sister witnessed the uh, Lincoln's funeral procession right uh, outside of Union Square. His grandfather had a mansion. And he was actually photographed. There was a photograph taken of the funeral procession, and, and since then really? people look at the window and, you and can they can see... tell it's Roosevelt and his sister. Yes, oh yes, yes. Uh, one little known fact about Roosevelt is that he left New York for a bit in the mid-1800s. He became a cowboy in North Dakota. Ah. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Comfortable New Yorker taking on the life of a cowboy. Um, he did come back in 1886, became interested in local Republican politics. He ran for mayor. He lost. Uh, but the mayor uh, who uh, won in 1894 was reform-minded, and he offered Roosevelt a seat on the board of the New York City Police Commissioners. He became president of the board and implemented a lot of reforms. Uh, now, just to burst a little bubble, if you think that the beautiful old police headquarters at 240 Center Street, which are now condos, was the headquarters of the police when Roosevelt was commissioner, you'd be wrong. That building wasn't completed until 1909. Uh, police headquarters was a few blocks away in this little dinky building at 300 Mulberry Street, which is no longer there. Uh, <clears throat> and just like Roosevelt saw the funeral procession of Lincoln, he himself would become president after another assassin's bullet claimed the life of President William McKinley. Uh, There's a model and statue to Teddy Roosevelt, an aptly named Theodore Roosevelt Park outside the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, Roosevelt was an avid shooter of wildlife. That was considered acceptable to kill majestic wildlife Mm -hmm. when he was alive. Uh, And he donated many specimens to the museum, which are still on display today. Yes, one of the uh, largest such collections in the world. Uh, Another U.S. president, former president, had uh, uh, a little life here. Remember Eloise, the fictional girl who lived at the Plaza Hotel? Ah. Well, there was a former president who spent much of his post-presidential years at a famous New York hotel, the Waldorf Astoria, Herbert Hoover, who was defeated by the next president we're going to talk about, and his wife, Lou Henry, moved to New York in 1933. Several months later, they moved to his native California, but when Lou Henry died in 1944... Hoover moved back to New York permanently and lived at the Waldorf until his death in 1964. Hmm. Now, room, pardon? The room service must have been worth it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, might have, he was probably a man of impeccable taste. I remember seeing a picture of him in tails at a White House function mm-hmm. while the rest of the country was uh, uh, wallowing in depression. And he was there with a cigar and there was someone talking. That might have been one of the reasons why he lost. <laughs> um. Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt, uh, who is certainly, in my judgment, the greatest president since Lincoln, um, he grew up north of New York in Hyde Park. Uh, And of course, no reference or highlights to Franklin Roosevelt would be anywhere near complete without also talking about his amazing wife and partner in life, Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor was actually born in the city in Murray Hill on 36 West 37th Street, and a building that's no longer there. Um, if you can imagine getting this as a wedding gift, FDR's mother, Sarah Delano, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, by the way, FDR was an only child, uh, she bought the young couple not one house as a wedding gift, but two side by side, uh, 47 and 49 East 65th Street. She had most of the interiors demolished and rebuilt the houses behind a single facade. The house is still there today, and you can see it. Uh, Roosevelt had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy during the First World War in the Wilson administration. 
he ran for vice president in 1920, but the Democratic ticket was defeated by the Republicans. Uh, Roosevelt wanted to get back into politics and was working to do that in 1922, but on a holiday in New Brunswick, he was stricken with polio in 1921 on Campobello Island. Uh, but Roosevelt was determined to overcome his physical challenges, would have kept most people out of politics, and struggled to get in as good a shape as he possibly could. Uh, his speech at the 1924 Democratic Convention in support of New York Governor Al Smith heralded his return to the stage after his illness and his convalescence. Actually, the 1924 convention was held at the old Madison Square Garden on Madison Square and 26th Street, mm. built by the famous... Stanford White. Yes, who also was gunned down at the top of that in the restaurant at the By club. Henry Thaw. <laughs> by Henry Thaw, yes, who ended up not uh, uh, paying the ultimate price for his crime. He ended up was being sent to a mental hospital for a while. Um, sadly, that building was torn down when the third iteration of the garden moved to 48th Street, what's now Hell's Kitchen. Roosevelt ran for governor in 1928. Uh, Smith got the nomination and therefore did not run for re-election as governor of New York. He won, and he ran for election in 1930 again and won again. Uh, something which most people don't know that Franklin uh, Roosevelt did as governor is he attended the opening of the Observatory of the Empire State Building. Mm. And, and of, of course, course, it's still there. There are pictures of him on the 86th floor. Uh, uh, Al Smith uh, uh, had been in charge of that project of building the Empire State Building. Uh, actually, um, this brings to mind another sort of skyscraper connection with an American president. When the Woolworth Building was opened in 1916, I believe, it was one of the first buildings to be brilliantly illuminated outside by electricity. And the person who flicked the switch for that was actually in Washington, D.C., President Calvin Coolidge turned on the lights in the Woolworth Building for its opening gala back during that year. And there were connections that enabled the, wow. Well, we're, well. <laughs> there a little bit of a PR thing, I okay. think. But, you know, it, that, that is part of the mythology of the Woolworth Building. Thanks. We didn't even talk about uh, Calvin. I didn't know he had that kind of a history in New York. Um, David, do you want to talk at all about some of the architecture that we have in New York thanks to Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration, the WPA? Yes. The WPA, of course, is very well known nationwide for providing uh, a number of extraordinary structures. Uh, a lot of them had to do with parks uh, being developed, uh, public spaces, uh, and buildings such as post offices and courthouses, libraries and other places. Uh, in New York City, we have dozens of such places. Uh, the Conservatory Garden at Central Park is a, a major figure of the WPA development, so the six-acre formal garden. Um, then we also have numerous statues by the artist Frederick George Richard Roth, uh, including the Dancing Bear, which most people know, Mother Goose, the Animal Freezes at the Central Park Zoo, which is also a WPA, uh, and the Alice in Wonderland theme sculpture that commemorates Sophie Loeb. Uh, she was a writer who advocated for children and playgrounds in Central Park. Um, one of the most glorious sort of caps, if you will, to uh, New York City's uh, sort of string of parks, particularly in Manhattan, is Fort Tyron Park, and that was built during the Depression era with the goal of providing public green space for Upper Manhattan. The land itself was donated by John D. Rockefeller Jr., who also was instrumental in the creation of the cloisters, but the park itself was developed as part of the Civil Works Administration, uh, CWA, PWA, and the Federal Emergency Relief. Relief Administration uh, through the Temporary Emergency Relief Act, all of which were associated with FDR. So uh, actually one of the greatest and, and sort of most gothic parks, I think, of any city, and uh, it's all due to FDR's legacy. Wow. Well, yours truly went to a high school built by the WPA, Midwood High School in Brooklyn. Um, one other thing about Roosevelt, uh, he has a whole island name for him uh, on Roosevelt <laughs> Island, uh, and there is an amazing memorial to FDR called Four Freedoms Park. Uh, it's after a portion of Roosevelt's 1941 State of the Union speech where he proposed four fundamental freedoms. Uh, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear that he said everyone in the world should enjoy. Uh, FDR was a great man. He was a great president. And yes, he hailed from New York. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Best designs for your life start 
At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Welcome back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman, and my guest is also our special consultant for Rediscovering New York, David Griffin. Wow, we're, uh, this time has just flown by. I we know. have still so many presidents to talk about, so we're going to run through some of them. Uh, many people don't know it, uh, but Dwight Eisenhower was president of Columbia University uh, from 1948. He was never completely comfortable in the role, but he was here right in Morningside Heights. Uh, and that brings us to his successor, John F. Kennedy. Uh, in a little piece uh, of unknown presidential history, JFK and his family lived in New York City for a while. Mm. In 1927, Joe Kennedy moved his family from Massachusetts to Riverdale, where young John attended the Riverdale Country School. And of course, JFK's life was cut short in Dallas in 1963. Um, we have memorials to the memory of JFK here in New York. We have the John F. Kennedy International Airport, which used to be called Idlewild. Uh, and most people don't know about it, but there's a memorial to JFK in Brooklyn in Grand Army Plaza on the opposite edge of the plaza from the Soldiers and Sailors Arch, yes, north of that amazing fountain. And of course, no reference to JFK in New York would be complete without speaking about his wife, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, later Jacqueline Onassis, and the great contributions she made to New York and to preserving our cultural heritage. Yeah, I think that I, of all the uh, the first ladies, uh, the wives of the presidents that we have been discussing, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis was probably the one that was the most important in terms of architecture because she really guided the preservation of Grand Central Terminal, which was under threat in the mid-1970s by a uh, office tower complex. They wanted to build basically a second version of the Pan Am building uh, just to the south of where that building had gone up in 1963. And and Jackie was outraged by this, and she put together an uh, incredible kind of group of preservationists that included the then mayor, uh, who she recruited into the, uh, the, the kind of combat zone, if you will, uh, and architects such as Philip Johnson. And they did manage to save uh, Grand Central Terminal. Uh, and she worked uh, really throughout the rest of her life in New York as a staunch advocate for, preser uh, for preservation uh, and for helping uh, restore and regenerate parks and gardens throughout the city. So uh, every time you go into Grand Central Terminal, obviously Warren and Whitmore and the Vanderbilt family are the people who created it. But if it weren't for uh, Jackie Kennedy, it would not be there. Simple as that. So. In some way, she's the eternalized first lady of New York City. Yes. Mm. Well... JFK's successor, Lyndon Johnson, didn't have a lot of history in New York, except he did something very important in New York City. He signed the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. That piece of legislation removed what had been the institutionalized discrimination that existed against non-Northern European immigrants, and also, in effect, repealed the horrendous Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which not only restricted immigrants from China, but also could exclude anyone who had Chinese ancestry from entering the United States. And very fittingly, Johnson signed the bill into law at the foot of the Statue of Liberty, mm. uh, giving renewed meaning to the promise of the United States as a haven for immigrants. And of course, New York as the country's prime gateway for people seeking a new life and fulfilling the promise of the American dream. 
Richard Nixon lived in New York. He actually lived in New York between his terms as vice president and president. Uh, he was a senior partner in a law firm. And in the late 1970s, after either being turned down or running into some issues and purchasing a number of cooperatives, uh, the Nixons bought a townhouse at 142 East 65th Street, which is still there. Ronald Reagan had a brief history in New York. Excuse me. <clears throat> in 1937, Reagan enlisted in the Army Reserve, and he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Officers of Reserve Corps of the Cavalry. And get this, in January of 1944, he was ordered to temporary duty in New York City to do what? To participate in the opening of the 6th War Loan Drive, which campaigned for the purchase of war bonds during the Second War. Hmm. Now, you might think that a movie star like Ronald Reagan would be a big draw for war bonds. But he wasn't the top producer. I don't know if anyone can guess this. The biggest producer of war bonds was Kate Smith. Oh, okay. <laughs> she helped sell $600 million in war bonds. Uh, for our listeners who don't know who Kate Smith was, uh, she was known as the first lady of radio. She was best known for her rendition of Irving Berlin's God Bless America. And although not intended when this phrase first out, she was the one that people thought of um, the phrase, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. She really was the biggest producer. <laughs> yes, she was. <laughs> Uh, George H.W. Bush lived here when he was ambassador to the United Nations during the Nixon administration. Uh, and Bill Clinton has a history here, here too. After his presidency, uh, he opened his personal office and the office of his foundation in Harlem at 55 West 125th Street, right near Lenox Avenue. Uh, he since moved his foundation downtown to Water Street in the Financial District, but he maintains his personal office. And uh, in a little sad bit of New York history, uh, with George W. Bush, not him specifically, but who could forget his trip to New York right after the attacks of September 11th? Three days later, after the darkest day in our city's history, standing on that pile of rubble where upwards of 3,000 people were killed. Um, and of course, now we have the 9-11 memorial and the new construction on the site, which has risen like a phoenix, which is emblematic of the indomitable spirit that our great city embodies and lives by to this day. Barack Obama has a history in New York. He went to Columbia and lived in New York City. And the places he lived and worked uh, and really studied are still there for us to see. He lived at 142 West 109th Street in Manhattan Valley. Uh, my sister actually lived around the corner when she went to mm -hmm. Barnard, but it wasn't the same building. Uh, he lived for a while at 622 West 114th Street, West 114th Street. It's a beautiful building in Morningside Heights where filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille lived from 1906 to 1913. Interesting. And he also lived at 339 East 94th Street, which uh, was on the cusp between the Upper East Side and Harlem, although I dare say when Obama was living there in the early 80s, it was probably more like East Harlem than the Upper East Side. And, uh, of course, that no retrospective of American presidents in New York would be complete without speaking about our current president, Donald J. Trump. But we've run out of time, so sadly we have to pass. No, just kidding. <laughs> we, do, we have to talk about Trump in New York. Uh, Trump grew up in New York, uh, in Queens actually, and he moved into Trump Tower when it, was completed, when it was completed in 1983. But as much as New Yorkers love the architecture of Trump Tower, something very special was lost in the process. Yes, the uh, site for a Trump Tower was acquired by uh, a Trump from Bonwit Teller, uh, and it was an amazing Art Deco building that had numerous base reliefs as well as an extraordinary bronze grill on it. Uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art learned that Trump was dismantling the building, and they came to him and asked for permission to retrieve those sculptures and decorative pieces, and Trump agreed to this. Uh, however, it seemed that he ran into an issue where he realized that it might cut into a little bit of the profitability factor, so he ordered the sculptures and the grill destroyed. The grill was probably uh, salvaged for its metal content, but the sculptures were broken up with hammers and wound up as landfill. Um, one thing that did happen that might be seen as a positive thing in terms of preservation is the fact that Trump acquired the air rights for Trump Tower from the Tiffany's building next door, which itself is a very monumental piece of art modern architecture and is now landmarked and protected in part because uh, Trump Tower was built next door and was able to kind of necessitate a little bit of the financial irregularity, if you will, of having such a small building at such a major site. So it seems to embody uh, nouveau riche to the core, you know, destroying the, the, the old and bringing in something new. Uh, Trump did reskin the Commodore Hotel, which is next to Grand Central. Yes, the original uh, Commodore Hotel was a Beaux Arts building by Warren and Wetmore. 
And the architect for that was also the architect for Trump Tower, a man named Der Scott, uh, an American architect. Uh, and he was sort of Trump's court architect for that period in New York history. Uh, he is probably best known after Trump Tower for the design of the Corinthian, which is actually a magnificent sort of neo-brutalist uh, apartment house uh, over in Murray Hill that faces the water and was one of the first to really kind of address the river with a series of rippling concrete bays. So uh, actually qu quite an interesting designer from that point of view. Mm. Well, thank you, David. On that note, we've run out of our time. Uh, special thanks to, to David Griffin of Landmark Branding. You can reach David at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, yes. I just want to make a quick correction. It was Woodrow Wilson and not Calvin Coolidge who ah. turned on the Woolworth building. Calvin Coolidge would never have used that much electricity. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for correcting the record. Right. Um, you can email me for information about the show at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. You can also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodman.nyc. Thanks to our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trust, estate planning, and probate administration. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who is our guest today. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, stay tuned for At Home with David Theergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.